We are in a series of messages titled Unstoppable. We're walking our way through the book of Acts. Before I get into the message for today, just one thing really, really quick. One of the, the ways that we kind of grow our faith at Crossroads Church is life groups. And so in this next few weeks, we're going to be having kind of all things life groups, I guess you could say. Uh, today, so what I want to do today is just very briefly, if you are willing, you are interested you're excited about the opportunity of leading a life group, would you do me a big favor? Would you take a connection card and just let us know and then drop that at the information center? Now, that could be a couple of different things. That could be uh, willing to be a host home. That would be great. We'd love to have hosts. We'd love to have hosts. Uh, if you want to lead a group, we'll train you. We'll get you up to speed. We'll get everything ready for you. No worries whatsoever. So those are a couple of opportunities. We would love for you to do that. One of the things Marcy and I are going to be doing as we begin the life group semester in September, we're going to be doing a starting point group. A starting point is for those who are new to faith, are coming into a place of, you know, I, there are some questions I have about faith and I would like to learn more about it. So Marcy and I are going to do a starting point group on Wednesday nights. So that's going to happen and there'll be more information forthcoming about other groups not just like this one, but there's going to be all kinds of opportunities for you. But we do encourage you to lead a group. If you're ready to do that, we'll help you. We will help you. We'll get you up to speed and ready to go. It's going to be a great, great semester. So that being said, on the 29th of this month, on the 29th, 29th, remember, 29th, last Sunday of August, we're having our life group fair. So you'll get to meet a leader's. You have opportunities to see where the life groups meet throughout the, throughout the area, all the different topics, a variety of things. So be ready for that. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful season together. Well, this morning, as I said, we're back into our studying the book of Acts. And I'm going to start off with a title. I don't always do that, okay? I don't always do that, but I'm going to do it today. Evangelism is good news, okay? Evan he said, oh, no, what is he going to talk about today? Well, you might imagine what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about, ready? I'm going to talk about the E word. Because sometimes when that E word is mentioned, we go, oh no, this is not, this is not good. I'm not so sure I'm ready for this. I, I, am, I am terrified. I am terrified of anything called evangelism, which just means sharing the good news. We get a little, we get a little, uh, I guess you could say tentative when we start talking about this particular topic, and I think some of it, I'll just say it this way, I, I really do understand from, for the most part, because I think some of us, we kind of walk through our life of faith, how would you say, a little bit less than confident of how to share our faith. And on the one side, that's okay. I mean, I get it, because there are times I'll get into situations or conversations, and I want to make sure that what I'm saying is actually what I should be saying. That I don't end up in a place where I feel like I'm, my, 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 my tang is tangled. You know, I don't want to go there. Because we all, we all get there, right? We have this a little bit of sense that I'm just not sure I can do this. There's fear, and so there's anxieties connected to it. So what I hope to do today is kind of demystify everything kind of connected to this word evangelism. And again, evangelism just means really the telling of the good news. That's what it is. I was reminded this last Tuesday. I'm in physical therapy for my shoulder, and I know I get, I'm so thankful for so many wonderful questions about my shoulder. My shoulder still hurts, okay, so... And it's going to hurt for a while, but I will tell you, it's getting better, even under the therapy that I'm in, 
getting ready for surgery. So surgery is on the horizon. I don't know when it is yet, but I should find out in the next week or so. Anyway, my shoulder's better, and part of the reason for that is physical therapy. And I was reminded Tuesday of, <laughs> and it didn't really register with me until like Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, after I was thinking about this in my preparation, that the last time I was in physical therapy, well, for anything serious, was for my, the same shoulder. And I went, well, that's, I had a skiing accident a whole bunch of years ago, had to go through physical therapy. Well, when I did, it was really interesting, I had this wonderful young lady who was my physical therapist who just got such joy out of inflicting pain on me. I, I, maybe that's not true, but that's certainly, the way it, that's certainly the way it felt. And so she's in the midst of this as she's working on my shoulder and doing all of these things. She's asking me spiritual questions. She's asking me about all kinds of things. And so during the course of that physical therapy times that we were together, I had an opportunity to just kind of share faith. It was really interesting, but here's what came to mind. Came to mind, I said, I wonder if under the present circumstances with this present physical therapist, if I'll have that same opportunity. Maybe, maybe not, but I might. But it could also be the server at the restaurant who asked me a question about what do you think is going on in the world? What about the news that's happening? And then able to share that. What about the, you know, my gardener, the guy who comes and mows my lawn when I chat with him about things of faith or the electrician who's in my home doing some work and I happen to strike up a conversation about faith. What does it all mean? Here's what it all means. And this is really significant for all of us to grasp you and I have tons of opportunity. You and I have tons of opportunities to be evangelists every day in just the regular course of life. Those are all of the things that just kind of happen during the course of a week or a month. We all have opportunities, abundant opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. As we continue on our series of Unstoppable, we come to, as I mentioned last week, a pivot point in, in the book of Acts. We're going to be pivoting away, as it were, from what's happening in Jerusalem for the most part. And we're going to start spreading out through what Jesus, when he made this statement in Acts chapter 1, he said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Be my witnesses. Remember where? Jerusalem. That's been done. Judea. That's been done. Samaria. That hasn't happened yet. And the uttermost parts are everywhere else in the world. That hasn't happened yet. But this is the pivot point. And we move away from these principal characters of the apostles for the most part. They'll still, they'll still, you'll see them from time to time. But we're moving away from that. And we have this group of individuals, Stephen, Philip, and Saul, a.k.a. Paul, who now become prominent on the scene. And one particular writer I thought was really fascinating. He said, really what we're seeing is a second generation of leadership. And that struck a chord with me. You, you see, there is next generation leaders that I believe that I as a pastor, and I'll say it this way, I do believe I have a lot of opportunities yet to invest in next generation leaders. But I will also say this. I don't have as many opportunities ahead of me as I did a year ago. And every day that passes, I have less and less opportunity to invest in the next generation. 
And you and I have a responsibility, whatever, wherever we may find ourselves in faith, is to invest in next generation leaders. And it is, some of us have young children at home. You're investing in next generation leaders. Grandparents, you're investing in next generation leaders. When you serve here at the church, in children's, in students, in whatever capacity that might be, you're investing in next generation leaders. Listen to Psalm chapter 78. Oh, my people, just a few verses. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories that we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors hand down to us. You notice that? Stories that our ancestors handed down to us. There was one point when a a leader invested in you as a next generation leader when they told you stories of what God had done in the past. Let's go on. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children so each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, and refusing to give their hearts to God. Some some commentators believe that as many as five generations are mentioned in this passage of scripture, that your influence in the next generation of leaders can have impact for the next, say, 300 years. That's powerful. That's powerful. So consider, next-gen leaders are right here among us, or right here right now. Invest in their lives. It's not just the future of the church, it's the present of the church. And it is important for us to take this very seriously. This is not something we should just pass off to, to someone else who may have more training, more experience, more whatever. No, it is as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to invest in next generation leaders. That would have been a really good opportunity for an amen. It's an incredible opportunity. And I hope that I'm doing well with that. And it should challenge all of us to do well with it. That's just a sidebar, just a sidebar. So as we've studied so far, we talked about this a minute ago. Everything's been somewhat centered around Jerusalem. And now we come to a personality, one of the original seven deacons of the church. His name is Philip. And Philip was a force to be reckoned with. There's no question. And especially as it relates to this word, evangelism. And what happens from this point forward will, as you move through the book of Acts, you'll get to chapter 17 and verse number six. And it's a critical statement that's made. And it's in the King James where it says, and these, listen, and I'll just use the ESV. It's a great translation. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That was not a compliment, but it does tell you exactly the impact of what happens from this point forward in the book of Acts. Turn the world upside down or right side up. So we're going to talk about Philip today, but pray with me. Father, thanks for your word, and I pray today you speak life to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to give you eight observations, eight observations and some practical thoughts about how to share our faith. Eight observations from chapter eight, (laughs) strangely enough, of the book of Acts. So we're going to take this in segment by segment. There's There's quite a bit of 
scripture we want to read, but it's important that we read it today. Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged all of them, excuse me, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached to the word everywhere they went. That is such a cool phrase. Here in the midst of all kinds of turmoil and struggle and difficulty, everywhere they went, they preached the good news. So observation number one, here we go. Overreach cannot stop it. And what am I talking about? What's the it? It cannot stop the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, overreach here can simply be defined as a, what does it say? A great persecution was levied against the church. It wasn't just something small, minor. It wasn't just, you know, little things that we might consider annoyances. No, it was a great persecution. And in fact, the apostle, who became the apostle Paul, Saul did this. He wasn't discriminatory at all. He threw men and women in jail. He was doing everything he could to crush the church. But it's overreach. It's overreach. The religious leaders are the ones who conspired to kill Stephen. And make no mistake, there is a power that is fueling this quote-unquote semi-righteous event. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 we read, these people are false apostles, false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Look at this. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they'll get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Understand. The adversary of our souls, Satan himself, was behind what was happening. But also make note of this. Satan is not all knowledgeable, nor is he all powerful. We ascribe too often too much authority and too much credit to the adversary of our souls. He thought this is going to end this thing. No, it propelled this thing to the point to where everywhere they went, they preached the good news. You see, Jesus turned what was intended to bring harm, brought good and glory to God. Amen? And it is important to understand that in all of our experience. Evangelism did not stop when this persecution happened. In fact, they were preached the word of God wherever they went. In 1949, missionaries were expelled from, the, from, from China. And when that occurred, when the Communist Party took control of, of mainland China, those in missions organizations were very, very concerned what would happen to the believers in China. And in fact, it's been somewhat closed for, for decades. Now, in its September 15, 2020 article by The Economist. Now, The Economist is not a, a magazine that would be dedicated to the things of God. It's just by its title. But listen to what they wrote. It said they, they reported that 38 million adherents today in the nation of China, 3% of the population, are followers of Christ. It's up from 22 million a decade ago. According to the Hear this, according to the government's count, 
That's the government's official count, all right? The true number is probably much higher, perhaps as many as 22 million more Chinese worship in unregistered underground churches today. You see, the Communist Party said we will expel missionaries, we will destroy Bibles, and we will burn churches. But what happened? The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to spread because it is unstoppable. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and nothing's going to stop it. Nothing. And the church continues to thrive in China, even under the most difficult of circumstances. And are you ready for this? There are more Christians in China. Number of Christians in China outnumber those in France and Germany combined. It gives you some idea of the unstoppable nature of the church. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 5. We're going to continue on. Acts chapter 8, verse number 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For, the shriek, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Observation number two. Many from every ethnicity will embrace it. Many from every ethnicity will embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. The Samaritans are the first part of it. Now, the Samaritans were a despised group of people. Had, they had been at odds with the Jews for about a thousand years. Things, this, was a, this was a mixed up group of people from every background that you can imagine. Read about what happened when the Assyrians conquered Samaria. Something happened. They deported, the, they, they deported who were there, the Israelites, and they brought back in people from every conquered nation that Assyria had conquered. And they all set up their own religious system. So they had this conflated, messed up, mixed up religious system going on in Samaria. The Jews didn't like that. The Samaritans probably didn't like the Jews. There was conflict continually between them for about a thousand years. They were mixed ethnicities, mixed religion, and you might even say they were just mixed up. You know what that tells me? It tells me a little bit about our society today. You know what is so cool about America? It is a melting pot of every, every ethnicity in the world. It is amazing. Out of many, we become one. It is just extraordinary. Did you know that there's no country quite like America anywhere in the world that has such a diversity of ethnicities? It is powerful when you begin to think about it. And what you see here is when the gospel goes to Samaria, so many, of the, so many different ethnicities begin to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. And it just is a reminder, a clear reminder, of the inclusiveness of the church, the inclusiveness of the gospel. Remember this verse, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come on, give me a good amen on that. That is so powerful. Everyone. It isn't for one group. No, it's for everyone. You gotta love that verse. But a question as I was prepping kept rolling through my mind. You ready for this? You're gonna love this. You're gonna love this. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you right now. Who are the Samaritans in my life? Huh? Who are the Samaritans in your life? You, you see, the Jews despise the Samaritans. But I wonder, I wonder, in our religiously correct life, 
Oh, Gary, you just meddling. That is not good. In our religiously correct life, who are the Samaritans in our life that we dismiss, that we overlook, that we don't consider? But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, every, many from every ethnicity will embrace the gospel. It's very clear. The third observation is the proclamation of Christ propels it. You see, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus. That's what it is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the proclamation of Jesus that, that is the difference maker. There is some debate in this passage as to where Philip went to preach in Samaria. You know, what city was it? Was it the capital city? Samaria was it another city? Like Jesus had gone to the little town called Sychar. When in, uh, if you can read about that in John chapter 4. What city was it? It's, it's interesting to me that we can get hung up on some of those things. And we miss the real intent. Because what happens here, it's not so much where he went, but what he preached. He preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. And, and when we have opportunities to share, there's a question that all of us will have to bring into that conversation at some point. You ready? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? That may be the first question that you ask somebody. But at some point, that's where it's going to lead. Why? Because it's the proclamation of Jesus that makes, that's the difference maker. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And here's what I would just leave with you. Jesus is the message and Jesus is the answer. In every one of our conversations, when I was having a conversation with that, that little gal from physical therapy, I want to tell you where it led. It led to Jesus. Jesus is the reason here. This is what it's all about. That's where it led. And eventually, in our, in our conversations, just as with Philip, when Philip was preaching in Samaria, Samaria he, proclaimed, he proclaimed Jesus. That was the difference. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I love how Paul says it. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to tell, to tell the good news and to tell it without using, look at this, and to tell it without using language of human wisdom in order to make sure that Christ's death on the cross is not robbed of its power. For the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost, but for us who are being saved, it is God's power. You see, what is he saying? He says the most important thing is Christ, his, his death. That's what it's all about. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he proclaimed. Observation number four, signs and wonders will accompany it. We see as Philip shares the gospel, there were signs, there were miracles. Impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. The power of God was accompanying the proclamation of Jesus. The power of God accompanied the proclamation of Jesus. Do not limit what God can do through you. One more time. Do not limit the, what the power of God can do through you. When you proclaim Jesus Christ, the power of God is available for that individual's needs. And the greatest need of all is that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ because that is a literal resurrection from death 
to life. Every one of you in the room today and everyone joining us online this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, you're the, that's the greatest miracle that's ever happened. You have come from death to life because of what Jesus Christ has done. Hallelujah. We proclaim it. But there are signs and wonders that will follow the proclamation of the gospel. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone belongs to Christ, they are a new. There is a new creation. The old things have gone and everything is made new. Hallelujah. Remember a man by the name of John. John came to our church. He was messed up. There was no, there was no way around it. He was messed up. He could hardly carry on a, a sentence. Drugs had so overwhelmed this man's life. He, he literally, it was difficult for him to communicate, but this he got out. I need Jesus. He had been raised in the church, had fallen away from the things of God, and had just kind of lived his own way. And it literally took an incredible toll on his life. But he gave his heart to Christ. And I want to tell you something. Over the next couple of years, we saw John completely transformed by the power of God to the point where he could quote and memorize scripture, where he could carry on not just a conversation, but a conversation where you could see that his mind had been renewed because of what God had done in his life. I want to tell you something. Signs and wonders and miracles will follow the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Do not limit what God can do through you when you and I proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Observation number five, great joy, great joy will result from it. From the proclamation of Jesus, the miracles, the salvation of so many, whether whatever ethnic background they may have, I want to tell you something, great joy is going to result. There's going to be some celebration happening. When lives, hear this, when lives change for the good, there is celebration. I don't think any of us would deny that. When lives change for the good, there's a celebration. And I can't think of anything better than when someone comes to faith in Jesus. That is a cause to celebrate. Amen? Hallelujah. Luke chapter 15, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's so good. So good. I remember doing a camp years ago when I was in student ministries. Young, by, young man by the name of Chad was there. I know Chad because I had the privilege of many years later of serving with him on staff. On a staff, which is just an incredible full circle. But that night as I had the opportunity to speak that evening and I offered for students who were there, this was a high, this was a high school camp, come to faith in Christ, come back to a place of faith in Christ. Chad walked forward and he was absolutely transformed. It was cool to see, but what was probably equally as cool was to see the joy on his sister's face when Chad came to faith. She was the, probably the happiest person in the room because she had seen the journey, his journey, but now she has seen what God has done. I want to tell you something. When God does great things, there's celebration and there should be joy in our hearts. And I think not only in our hearts, but on our faces when people come to faith, Right? Well, let's, look, let's continue on. Actually, before I do it, before I do it, I put this in my notes and I just about walked by it and I think it's, it's important that we do this. I'm wondering this morning, do you have family members who don't know Jesus? 
I wonder, is there a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, grandson, granddaughter, whatever it is, an aunt, uncle? Do you have someone in your life that doesn't know Jesus? Probably every one of us in this room do. So right now, what I want you to do is I want you to just, as I pray, I want you to just call their name out to the Lord and say, Lord, bring them to a place of faith. Use me, use someone, but bring them to faith. Would you do that? Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that we can come before you and pray and we can pray for those precious people in our lives who don't know you. We pray in Jesus' name you would use us. You'd bring someone into their lives that would bring them to a place where they would come to repentance and would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do a miracle in their life. And Lord, we'll be the first to rejoice and give you honor and praise when they embrace the good news of Jesus. Let it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Acts chapter eight, verse number nine. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ, they were, both, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this ability so that I, everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive of sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After that, after they heard further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Observation number six, those, there are those who will attempt to corrupt the good news of Jesus Christ. There are those who will attempt to corrupt it. And we can see so much of that, unfortunately, in our day. Just, and I'm, please don't go on the internet and look this stuff up, okay? This, there's, it's out there. It'll probably come across your feet at some point. There's all kinds of false stuff being thrown out there in the name of. And we have to be so very careful. And this is what's happening here in many respects. You see, what happens with Simon is that Simon is a, he's a sorcerer. I mean, but he apparently comes to faith. But you notice how Peter addresses him. He said, repent of this. There's wickedness here. There's bitterness here. There's something not right. Evidently, Simon had made some profession, but there was nothing to give evidence of the fact that he was truly a believer. In fact, everything that I studied this past week about that pointed to the same fact. There doesn't seem to be any reality of faith. But here, what does he want to do? He wants the power so that it can be displayed for whatever reason, obviously to draw more attention to himself, but it's a corruption of what God was doing in Samaria. 
He was boastful and flamboyant. He was a sorcerer. And the people were taken by what he, by what he said and by what he did. But what can we learn from this? We can learn that when things like this are left unchecked, the Simons of the world can corrupt the good news of Jesus. And it, and it causes you and me to be even more diligent in our understanding and study of the word of God. We understand things that are false when we really understand the things that are true. Those become very apparent to us. I would say it this way. When we encounter the real, the false is abandoned. When we encounter the real, the false is abandoned. And you notice that's what happened. The people walked away from Simon because there was something authentic and genuine that God was doing in Samaria, and they wanted to be a part of this. And, some, and, and Simon was corrupting that. And Peter and John are having nothing to do with it. No, this has got to stop. And evidently, it did. Mark chapter 13 and verse number 21, at that time, if anyone, this is Jesus, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. So I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus warns us and challenges us to be on our guard against those who would undermine, corrupt, and falsely and falsify the message of Jesus. That's a challenge to you and me. It's a, hear, hear this carefully. We cannot take this lightly. When Jesus said, and this is all about the, the, the time of the end. This is Mark chapter 13. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm setting these things in motion. And you've got to be on your guard. You've got to be aware. You've got to be prepared for what is going to occur. Be prepared. Be on your guard. And the last portion of Scripture this morning, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, now before I go any farther, let me just stop. Philip is having a great time in Samaria. Okay, let me just, he's having a great time. People are coming to faith. Things are changing in Samaria. God is doing great things. All right, now let's continue on. Now, an angel of the Lord said, go south to the road, the desert road that goes, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So, so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. The Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man was reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the, to his, to the slaughter and, a, and as a lamb before his shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began to, with that very passage of scripture, told him about the good news of Jesus, about Jesus. So they traveled along the road that came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of, me, of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Such a cool encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch. This Ethiopian dignitary. He was probably something like a finance minister. He was also most likely a proselyte to Judaism. 
So consider what's just happened. Remember, you'll be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, check that box. And the ends of the earth, that box just got checked. Because to many, the ends of the earth was Ethiopia. The, the earth didn't go any farther than that. And so what you, what you see is you see the fulfillment of what Jesus had commanded his, his disciples to do. And it's, that's such a cool story. But what is also remarkable to me, Philip is having a great time in Samaria. The crowds are great. Okay, you gotta, you gotta put a little bit of his ego. I don't think maybe Philip didn't have any ego. So I'll just talk about my ego. It is an amazing experience when thousands of people, when you're having an opportunity to minister to thousands of people, you go, man, I'm really good. And the reality is, no, you're not. You know, it's God. So I, what I want you to do is I want you to just draw a comparison between what was happening and what he was called to do. Great things are going on. God says, hey, I want you to leave this and go down to a desert road and talk to one guy. But God, this is just so effective. Look at this. I want you to go and talk to one guy. You see the contrast? Do you see the conflict that many of us might have? But what is so striking, I mean, here's observation number seven. Obedience is an imperative as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obedience. And I know everything I just said, we don't know if Philip said any of that or thought any of that. That's just me. That's just my whatever. But he was obedient because now the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And this man is credited with the church exploding in the nation of Ethiopia and to the African continent. See, we don't know all that God is doing when God asks us to do, th to do something. We don't know what our obedience, what the outcomes of our obedience might be. Remember this verse, 1 Samuel 15, 22, just a portion, to, to obey is better. To obey is better than anything. It's obedience that God wants from each of us. Our insight and perspectives are limited and our unqualified obedience to God assures us of the greatest of godly outcomes. Did you hear that? Our unqualified obedience to God assures us of the greatest godly outcomes. Are we willing to be obedient to God? Hear this, God's leadership in our lives often defies human logic. We can't figure it out but it is God leading us. And that is so very important. Isaiah 28, 21, it's an interesting verse. Listen to the way the prophet says this. The Lord will rise up to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Do you notice that the, the subtleties of those words? Things that we just don't get. We can't figure it out. Why would I go from here to here? It doesn't make any sense. Why would God ask me to do this when so many good things are happening here? Why would I go down to the desert road? Come on. But his obedience brought the best and the greatest of godly outcomes. Be obedient. Because to obey is better. To obey is better. And I gotta throw this in. I gotta throw this in. 
If you have not been baptized in water since coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized and follow the Lord in obedience. So I'm going to tell you today, maybe you've come back to faith. Maybe you just had run away from God. I've got already one individual who's talked to me and said, I want to be baptized. Because I was baptized a long time ago. And since that time, I went through all kinds of junk. And I just want to make a rededication, a recommitment. And maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe you were baptized as an infant. You were sprinkled. And that's the faith of your parents. And we give them, we just give them such props. Way to go, mom and dad. But since you have come to faith in Christ, have you been baptized in water? Have you made that public declaration of faith in Jesus? If not, now's the time to do that. September, the last Sunday of September, we have our baptism at the beach. It's going to be in Oceanside Harbor. It's a blast. I want to have the privilege of baptizing you on that particular day. So let us know. Take a connect card and let us know. Just like with life groups. I'm interested in life groups, baptism. I'm ready. You know, whatever you're interested in, we want to know. But baptism, let it be so. Okay? All right. So as we bring our time to a close, I want to give you very quickly... I know it's a lot, but I'm going to give you nine things, just nine practical thoughts about evangelism. And then one more observation, one more observation. So here we go. The first one, obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to have conversations, but you got to be obedient to that. I can't, I don't know how many times, and I could probably ask this question, and we could probably all answer it in the same way. How many times have we missed it? Uh, more than I can count, Right? You go, oh, goodness, that was, he like put the ball in the tee. I just didn't hit the ball. What's going on? So obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Number two, start where people are. You know, there is such a difference today than even when I was growing up. There's just a, a lack at this particular point of a complete understanding of a biblical truth or, or biblical foundations. It's just not there. But start where people are. Engage them where they are in conversation. You'll be surprised at where it will eventually lead. Number three, stay focused on Jesus. Let Jesus be what drives that conversation. And you say, well, Gary, I just don't know that much about Jesus. Well, let me give you, I'm going to give you a really good resource. It's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really good resource about Jesus. In fact, it's all about Jesus. Read it. Study the gospel. Study his life. He's compelling. And I will tell you, <laughs> this, Jesus is a lot more compelling than most Christians. Ouch. It's true. People are, they're cool talking about Jesus. They're just not so cool about some Christians. I don't want to be that Christian, right? So start, start where people are. Stay focused on Jesus. Number four, scripture must be your foundation. Let scripture be what gives you, that's the platform, that's the foundation on which you stand and everything proceeds from there. Now understand, people aren't going to be at the same place that you are. If they are away from God, if they're away from faith and they don't know much about it, you can't assume that they have the same level of understanding or knowledge of scripture. And it's not that you dumb it down, but it's your foundation. When you're speaking, you're, you're saying, well, you know, Gary, I've heard that, you know, like every path leads to like to the same place. You know, if I believe this, I'm going to be cool. And if I believe that, I'm going to be cool. So what would you do at that point? Well, I hope that all of us would say, I understand where you're coming from because that's kind of the prevailing wisdom. But let me just share this with you. There was a person by the name of Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. If you want to know God, you got to know me. 
Now, that's not a direct quote of John 14, verse 6, but it essentially says the same thing, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, let it be your foundation. Let Jesus be your focus. Number five, tell your story. Your story. Your story's compelling. You say, really? You know, I grew up in the church. I came to faith when I was 10. You know, I never did anything except go to church and love Jesus. Your story is still compelling. Look at how Jesus preserved you and protected you all those years. And only God can do that. Or you came out of something very different. Tell your story. Your story is worth hearing. Number six, depend on the Holy Spirit for what to say and how to say it. This is really critical. It is, is so important. And this really, I would suggest, is nurtured by prayer. It, it's something that we have to continue to pray through. John 16 and verse number 13 says this. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's nurtured by our understanding of God's word, and it's also nurtured through prayer. God, help me to understand the truth, your truths as revealed in scripture, so that I can be sensitive and depend upon what to say and when to say it and how to say it. And God will, give, will grant that to you. Number seven, don't be reluctant to ask for a response. Now, this can be the, the intimidating part, but you, I, I do believe when you're depending upon the Holy Spirit and you're following the Holy Spirit's promptings, you'll know, you'll know whether or not to ask for it. That's what happened with the eunuch. It was interesting. It's really fascinating. If you go back to that story, what does the eunuch do? Hey, 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 don't forget. Let's do something here. There's water right there. Can I be baptized now? Wouldn't that be cool that you're having a conversation with this person? You're not expecting, and they go, hey, can I, can I ask Jesus into my head right now? Uh, yeah, you know, I, wouldn't that be cool? But don't, don't be afraid to ask for a response. What if you said, well, what if you did this? What if you said this statement? What if you said yes to Jesus? To, to your friend or to your family. What, what have you said yes to Jesus? How would you like to have the love, the joy, the peace, and the power that we've been talking about? What have you said yes to Jesus? Man, what a great question. Number eight, pray, pray, pray. There's really two parts to this prayer. The first is pray for opportunities to share your faith. I, I've got to, I, honestly, I've got to be better at that. I have to be better at that. I've got to pray for more opportunities to share my faith. And number two, pray for receptive and open hearts. Pray for receptive and open hearts. You come into a conversation and somebody you just, or maybe it's a family member. Sometimes family members are the hardest to ever share our faith. I get it. But pray that there's an openness and a receptive, receptivity to what you're saying. And then finally, number nine, be patient. Be patient. There's a story, story is told of a young preacher who went to visit a, an inmate at a local jail. The, the guy was messed up. But this, this preacher was there and he's having a conversation with him and he's telling him about Jesus and, and the man said, yep, I'll receive Jesus right now. And then he said, preacher, preacher, listen, don't get no big head now. It's because you're number 25 that has been sharing with me the faith, of, the faith of Jesus. And understand how true that is. You may not be the first, you might be the first, but you might be number 25. And so that's why asking for responses is cool. God will lead you into that. And then be patient. God has the right time, the right place. And then one final thought, observation number eight. All of us 
are compelled to do it. None of us should be out of, out of a place to be able to share our faith or, or unwilling to share our faith. I trust that all of us will. Did you know that in a 2018 study, 79% of the unchurched said they would be willing to engage in a faith conversation if a Christian friend asked them? Almost eight out of 10. We just have to put these other principles into place. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How could people have faith in the Lord and ask, and ask him to save them if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? That's our responsibility. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that each of us would, would not only be challenged, but Lord, we would be encouraged today, not fearful. And Lord, we would put into, put into practice these simple things that I trust will be helpful on Monday. And Lord, help us to share our faith. Help us to share our faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.